and welcome to Comfortably and Numb, the official podcast of the Umbrella Society. We are a non-profit organization based out of Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, who help individuals experiencing substance use and mental health challenges, as well as their families and loved ones. We try to provide a wide range of supports, including outreach, groups, counseling, and sober support of housing. My name is Blake Anderson. I'm the program manager here at the Umbrella Society, and this, folks, is our inaugural podcast. what we're trying to do with these podcasts is to shed light on the world of recovery through a wide range of lenses, perspectives, and voices. In our part of the world, and also around the world, addiction and mental health challenges are aggressively on the rise. The number of overdose and substance-related fatalities are horrifying and downright unacceptable. But the conversation around interventions, supports, and solutions are both complex and far from unanimous. But through our personal experiences and the experiences of our clients, we have a great deal of optimism and belief that recovery is possible and that people can build their lives back when given the opportunity and the support needed. So this podcast is going to explore the ever-progressing world of recovery through the stories of those who have found personal success in their battle with substance use. And we'll also take a deeper look into some of the interventions and the programs that are seeing success around the world today. Hopefully this podcast resonates with folks and starts the conversation about recovery in their own circles. So, with this being our first cast, I thought it would be fitting to invite an individual from our own organization. Our official first guest of the Comfortably and Numb podcast is none other than Evan James. Evan is currently the Education and Training Manager here at Umbrella. He has not only been working for the organization for over eight years, but he has also been a client can share with us not only his insight from years of supporting individuals struggling with substance use, but his own story of his struggles and his road to recovery. So Evan, it's good to see you, brother. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Right on. Happy to be here. Right on. So listen, with our, uh, you know, as I was saying in this, uh, you know, quick intro here, this is really trying to shed the light on recovery and, and look at it through so many different lenses. Um, you know, I, I think the best way to start is just to hear a little bit about your story and, you know, what, what first got you thinking about recovery? Do you have a specific time that, that, you know, you remember really had an impact on you or, or where you decided to make a change and, and actually look at recovery? Yeah, I think, um, my journey into substance use, um, progressed quite rapidly from a young age. Um, I realized as I was getting older, that my experiences with substances were not the same as those of my friends or people I hung out with, um, and that that it quickly became all-consuming in my life. There was um, one moment that stands out to me was when I had been going for a few days and and decided that that I couldn't keep going and couldn't keep up the rate of drinking and drugging that I was doing and and decided that I had had enough and... um, I called some family um, and said, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go to rehab. And I thought at that moment that that was all it took, that I could just reach out and say, I'm ready and, and I'm going to go to rehab and I'll go get fixed. Um, not knowing, of course, uh, which, which I would later learn through my own journey and through my work, uh, the complexity of the system and the wait lists and hoops to jump through and all the red tape that gets involved in that. But, um, that original kind of desire to, 
to not keep doing what I was doing, um, went away, uh, the next day, once, once I realized that wasn't a reality and I kept going on the path I was on for many more years, but that, that one night stands out to me, um, particularly because it was when I thought about it later, it was like, if that, if that had been a reality, if I could have just in that moment when I wanted to make a change, when I felt like I had enough, if I had been able to go get help then or at least start the process it may not have stuck but it could have saved me years and years of my addiction getting progressively worse right right i mean i think that's the the problem we see you know day in day out is that window of you know desire to make that change or that conviction is pretty fleeting at at times you know especially you know when, when you're in the throes of it um what what changed when when did you actually you know that was the first time that you you know thought about it and and was you know started started talking about it when did you actually reach out for help and how did you do so yeah it wasn't the first time I actually um received help or talked about recovery options was not necessarily a conscious reaching out and asking for help it was when I ended up in the hospital after an overdose and that was when umbrella um became a part of my journey and and got involved in my life I was visited and I think one of the social workers there referred referred me to Umbrella and someone came and saw me and told me a little bit about his story. And um, that was the first time I'd heard that was the first person I'd ever met in recovery um, in my life at that point when I was in the hospital there. And um, hearing that, you know, hearing from someone that had been there and that had got out of it um, was provide a little bit of hope and um that, that started my involvement with, you know, my long road to getting well. Right. So, I mean, that obviously was, was something that was presented in front of you. When was the first time that you took the steps? What was your first venture into recovery on your own terms? Yeah, I think that that started the, the kind of process. And I think each time I ended up um, getting really low again or, or struggling and, and needing change, I was able to reach out um, because I knew someone at that point, right? I knew someone that was in recovery and that I could call, um, and that was Umbrella. And eventually, um, you know, it was, I, I ended up going to detox. That was a seven-day stay where you can uh, get assistance medically withdrawing from, from the substances you're using. And that was... Agreeing to go to detox um, was the first kind of the first thing I did that that provided me with 24 hours of sobriety. And since I was a kid, essentially, right, I'd been drinking every day for so long um, that that was my first kind of kick at the can doing that detox day. Right. And then from there, after the seven days, you kind of back into back into reality, back into your, your own life. Did anything stick? Um, at that time, what was the what was the, that first experience like? Yeah, it was it was uh, it was shocking, right? Going into detox and not knowing what the heck I was walking into or what to expect. I mean, it it helped a little bit being able to have um, someone from Umbrella explain the situation and to come see me when I was in there, a familiar face, right? Um, but it was it was all brand new to me, and it was I kind of described it as like you know, once that substance was removed, I felt like just an open scab right like it was I'd been using alcohol and drugs for so long to not feel anything that all of a sudden take away the substances and everything came rushing back right Right. and with that was so much guilt and so much shame over 
um, where I was at in my life, over the way I've been living, over the things I'd done in my addiction, and I had zero tools on how to navigate life and and how to handle those feelings in the beginning, and it was it was just too much. So I, I quickly went back to the only tool I knew, which was um, getting numb, right, and and drinking again. So that started a long process of being in and out and in and out of the hospital and detox. Sometimes I'd go to detox and I'd literally go for 24, 48 hours even um, and check out against medical advice and go straight to the liquor store across the street because it was just that compulsion was so strong. Um, But each time it was, I I think each time I, I learned a little bit and got, you know, the process became a little less scary and less new. Um, but that that was kind of the pattern for a number of years. Right. And I think that's the, you know, the hardest part, I think, you know, when talking to family members and, and loved ones, but also just general members of the public is this assumption that, you know, if you jump into recovery and you seek that intervention, um, whenever that may be, that, you know, it's kind of no looking back. You know, I always laugh about the, the show intervention, you know, when um, all of a sudden an individual is agreeing to go to treatment and the, the happy music plays and it kind of seems like, oh, there's no turning back. That's it. You know, we we're seeking help. Uh, mm-hmm. Just knowing that that is the start of, of a journey and that there's a lot of bumps on the road that relapse is, you know, part of that process most of the time and that it does take multiple kicks at the can. Um, you know, for you, what, what was your experience kind of going through that? Was there a, a period of getting discouraged doing that? Or, I mean, what was, what? how did you navigate that? For sure. And I mean, I don't... Th- it doesn't have relapse does not have to be part of the process. Um, it very commonly is, but, but absolutely it was, it can be discouraging in the beginning to hear two other people in detox or, or in the treatment center saying it's their eighth time, their 10th time. And it's like, Oh, does this actually work? But, but everyone's different when they're, when they're ready, they're ready. Right. Um, and, and how long it takes us can take different amount of times. But for me it was, um, that kind of gap between when I would leave detox or the hospital and end up back in the hospital, um, that gap was getting shorter and shorter. Right. And the amount of time I could stay out there drinking and using was getting shorter and shorter. Right. Uh, so it, it just became so obvious. And, and things started to, like all these things started to fall apart in my life where by the end I couldn't hold down a job. I couldn't hold down relationships. Um, and it was, and my sanity was gone too, right? I was suicidal. I was doing things I never thought I would do before. Um, and it just became so blatantly obvious that I literally could not physically or mentally keep going, um, with substance use. Right. So the reality was just smacking you right in the face and, and you knew you just had to totally just step, but it's a scary place to be in when that, when you have that reality, but you don't have any belief or faith in the other reality of, of living without substances, right? Like I didn't think that was a possibility. So it's, what do you do in that, in that moment? Right. And that's where it's, was really helpful to hear other people that had been in that exact same spot explain that, um, you know, that desire or, or that, um, that ability to live without substances can, it will come in time. Right. And it's a hard sell in the beginning because you're told, you know, we're used to using substances where you change the way you feel instantly. Um, you're not feeling good. You use something, you feel differently where now we're being told, okay, stop using and you will feel better slowly down the road in a long time. Right? So it's a tough, it's a tough sell, but eventually it just gets too painful to be able to keep going. 
Right. You know, and I think that is, is something that is, I've seen in, in my client work is so many people fall flat a lot of times recognizing or not recognizing how long this the process is right and Mm -hmm. i think too you know you get it from outside sources too you get that pressure from from family and 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 from you know the people in your life that don't understand uh addiction uh telling you okay or you know can't we get back to things now and not knowing how much hard work is is put into this and like you say you're rebuilding your your life again you're having to relearn you know, ways to cope with the world coming at you. And, and, um, I, yeah, I don't think people realize how long that process is and, uh, that, yeah, it's, it, it is hard because it's a slow burn, right? It, it, it is what we're talking about down the road, staying that course. What, you know, for you, what, what helped maintain you stay that course? Like, obviously, you know, you you're now years and years in, I, I think you've lost track where you're around 12 years. Is that, 13, I believe. 13 now. years. I kind of stopped counting, but yeah, right. it's getting up there. So, you know, finding that extended time, what, you know, for you, what was, what kept you, um, you know, staying the course, as it were? I think it was getting, getting the time under my belt and, and proving that it was possible and that it wasn't a death sentence and torture. I think it's hard when you're in detox, it's such a small sample size of sobriety to build off. And you're going through withdrawal and post-acute withdrawal and feeling not good. And so if you, if you just think that that's the reality of what it's like being sober, it's not a good selling point and it almost feels like it's not worth it, right? Because yeah. um, you're just battling cravings and, and you're having using dreams and all this kind of stuff that it wasn't until, you know, actually getting a few, a month. Really, it was when I went to stabilization the first time, which is... Um, a month-long program here in Victoria where where you stay and you do outpatient stuff and groups and you do inpatient stuff too. But um, that going there and doing 28 days there was when the fog started to clear and I started to see that it was possible um, for this not to be a death sentence and that, hey, I was hanging around with a bunch of other people in the same boat as me and we were actually starting to laugh and actually starting to have fun in recovery and and do stuff that I did not think was possible and and things started to get a little better right so I realized at that point that okay maybe, maybe there is a little bit of hope it just getting that time under my belt provided a bit of hope to build off sure right and I think you know you brought up a great point is that connection with other people that are going through the same thing. Right. And, um, and yeah, having fun recovery is an incredibly serious, you know, this is, you know, addiction is a very serious uh, issue and there's not usually a lot of brevity and, and laughter kind of surrounding it, uh, finding that and also finding support and in individuals that are kind of walking the same journey and, uh, you know, maybe at different places, but kind of heading in the same direction. That's gotta be such a, you know, and we've seen it's just such a vital piece to this. Can you, can you talk about, um, you know, your experience with, with, you know, the program with AA and and, and with groups and, and what's, what was that, that vital piece and, and how did that, that fit into your, your journey? Yeah, I tried, I, I've tried everything. Um, I, I kind of, in the beginning, it was suggested to me that I try all the different supports and all the meetings that were out there and, and figure out what was going to be a good fit. And in the beginning I did that, I tried all sorts of different options um, and, and I found the groups and, and being part of the recovery community, 
um, to be a huge, a huge blessing and support along the way. Like you said, just being able to be around other people that understood what I was going through and leaning on each other and supporting each other and, um, and, and caring about each other was, was a huge, huge piece in the beginning for sure. And those support groups, having structure, like when we were in stabilization, we were given a weekly calendar and, um, you know, there's a requirement that we went to a certain amount of meetings per week and we had to mark them down. And in the beginning, that structure was so integral to me being able to stay on track. Um, because in addiction, there was zero structures, just chaos all the time, right? It's whatever, you know, there, it was tunnel vision looking for the next drink or the next hit, but, um, you know, in the beginning I craved that structure and needed it. So being able to try all different meetings and different groups and, and being able to commit to some of them, um, and have people expecting you to be there and, and have plans with people was, was key in the beginning. You know, and I, I think a lot of times we get, you know, when, when we do get resistance uh, around, you know, attending groups and something like a, there's, it's a, a lot of the resistance is, is based around the content. And I always say like the content, you know, if you have some takeaways, great, but it's the connection, it's the sense of community that's, you know, incredibly important. You know, I think that's another thing to recognize too, is not only are we losing our coping me- mechanism, a lot of times we're losing our friend base, right? And, and the people that, that, you know, we've kind of made our community with, right? It might be an unhealthy, uh, you know, potentially fatal group of people to be around and it's something that we need to make that separation from, but it leaves the gap, right? And that, you know, filling in the void and, and getting that connection, um, you know, with, with, with your, your experience in, in treatment, I, I, can, can you talk about that a little bit? Because you did go to res, residential treatment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after stabilization, um, it, it was suggested to me that I go to treatment, um, a suggestion I did not take. And, um, I, after the 28 days, I thought that was it. I was good to go. And, um, I lasted about seven days after I left stabilization and was out on my own. Uh, before I relapsed and and quickly jumped right back into to it, you know, I learned through many relapses um, that there was no easing back into it, and and sort of sure. there's no going backwards with the progression of of your substance use. So it wasn't like I could go back to five years prior when I kind of had it under control and and start to ease back to where I was at the end out of control. It was no, I picked up where I left off and got worse, you know, and the problem is that once you have a bit of knowledge that it's possible and that recovery exists, it makes it even more, it makes it much worse when you're out there still drinking and using when you know there's another way. Um, so I, I kept going and, and didn't last that long before ending up back in and again, detox in and out. Um, finally I agreed to go to residential treatment where I went to the Phoenix center over in Surrey um and yeah that was i I made some great strides there um it was was scary process going over to the mainland and not knowing um what i was walking into as far as what treatment entailed and and being committed to being there for uh 90 days um but yeah made some great connections there worked with some great counselors and, and made some good progress right right and i mean phoenix is a great example of a program i think it has a really cool uh you know, second stage program and that, you know, we are always talking about kind of graduated steps where treatment is such a, an intense uh, experience that same thing, those transitions back into just kind of regular life can be really jarring, right? And really troublesome. 
So they've got a really cool program there, right? Where you're kind of still on site, you're at residence, but you have a little bit more freedom. You got some, some mentorship attached to that as well. Yeah, it was really cool. And I think we got, when you come in, you're, you're on one of the two floors and it's a progressive kind of thing, but they do have, like you said, the second stage housing attached to it. And those guys that um, were in the second stage, some of them had been there for a couple of years and they were working and getting on with regular, so-called regular life, but they really were mentors to us new guys coming in and, and um, we were able to, you know, there were people we kind of looked up to and, and were able to learn from, right? Um, there was a requirement in the second stage housing that you had to attend one of the house meetings with, with the new folks. So, you know, you would see those guys start to sponsor some of the new guys coming in and just friendships form, right? Because we're all, we're all like-minded folk. And um, yeah, those relationships were, were really big and that that time through treatment, I still remember most of the guys I went through, um, went through there with that are that are still with us. Um, and yeah, those were impactful early days for sure. Right, right. So I mean, obviously with you, you you know, it took some multiple kicks at the can, but but you started to seek some long longer term uh, recovery. Your sobriety was starting to get in check. When did you? Um, decide to get into this field because this is kind of where the tables turned right and and you're going from being a client and, and all of a sudden you've taken a position at umbrella um what did that look like what what kind of brought you to there and and what was your your initial experience turning the tables yeah so just to get to that point um it wasn't that that stay at treatment i'm just going to quickly touch on that it wasn't right. i just didn't just go to treatment and stay sober after no, that, i right. did um I believe I had like 40 days of treatment and then I relapsed and the treatment center let me back in where I stayed and got another 60 something days, which was awesome that they let me come back because I was able to kind of continue and, and make progress and learn more. Uh, then I left there and relapsed again and ended up um, back in Victoria where I did another detox stay and another stabilization stay. And that last stabilization stay was the one where I was kind of able to put it all together and sure. everything I'd learned and every th way I learned that didn't work, I was able to kind of um, kind of use that all to, to form a, a really good, solid early recovery plan that worked for me. Right. Um, so from there, I, I continued to obviously stay in touch with Umbrella and um, volunteer with them. Um, I was able to take part and they did some learning series for, for youth and I was able to go and share my story which was uh which was really powerful for me to be able to go and and you know help other people was something that i never thought would have been possible when i was in my addiction in the midst of my addiction that was just it was all so negative to right. think that anything good could ever come from that was was something i had no idea would have been possible at the time so i i volunteered stayed in touch with umbrella and as i put time together um got my life back together and um, I'm not really back together. I, people always talk about getting your life back, but for me, it was building a new life, right? Sure. Yeah. I, I didn't know any of these tools. I didn't have any of this stuff in my life. So it was, it was starting from scratch really, um, and building up this new life and a new family and a new career. And eventually the opportunity came to, uh, work for umbrella. I, I'd been thinking about getting into the field and I was signed up for the mental health and addictions course. I had had I'd been accepted into it, and then um, Charlene called me and 
uh, told me I was coming to work for Umbrella, so that was <laughs> that okay. was that. You're told. I, I, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's how it happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I jumped into it, and um, I mean that was my end goal anyway, was to come work for Umbrella. So I, I just kind of bypassed that and, and ended up doing the frontline work and, and getting all that priceless experience that that I don't think I would have got through schooling anyway. Right. And obviously coming into this field, uh, you know, having the, the journey you did, having the understanding under your belt um, and that kind of compassion and, and empathy for where people are, are coming from, such a valuable piece, right? You know, and, um, you know, in, in your, you know, countless, countless clients that, that you supported, um, you know, what was what was your, your approach when, when you're meeting with someone who's, you know, either uh, you know, at, on that precipice of, of making change or maybe not even quite there yet. You know, what, what are the conversations that you had to kind of tell people that, Hey, this is a possibility, right? This is, it isn't just all doom and gloom and that there is the way out of this. Yeah. I think being able to tell people I've been there and, and I know what it's like and, you know, share little bits and pieces of my story was, was hugely helpful. But as far as approach, it was, um, you know just just compassion like that's I think people um you know I I knew from my own experience that I beat the crap out of myself every single day um so badly when I was in addiction and in early recovery that I didn't need anyone else to do it for me I needed someone um to believe in me and and show me compassion so that's what I tried to do for my clients um every client is different and what they need is different and what's going to motivate them is different um, but but that was kind of the general approach approach was just treat people kindly and and believe in them and and try and help them get where they need to be you know and I think you, you touched on something there I think that there is so much shame and guilt attached to addiction right you know but the individual but also what is put on them cast on them from society from their the people around them from their their families and and you know, it's just really from a lack of understanding, right? And a lack of, of you know, it's not even an uncompassionate piece. It just, um, I think that, that that shame and guilt just naturally follows, you know, this this challenge and, um, you know, breaking that down. I, I look at the shame and guilt as just being fueled to the fire, right, of, of addiction. It just really compounds the, the problem. So I think you're totally right. Coming in and actually being that, that person on that side who believes in you, man, that that can be what it takes. Right. Um, I, I also always loved your approach. Um, when you really talked really early on that, that recovery isn't a one size fits all model, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and sometimes there's, we, we do have people in the recovery world. They're like, this is the only way, this is the only way that you're going to see success. You know, that's, that's not our, our, um, you know, belief and definitely not yours. And I just loved how you pumped that. How did you, how did you kind of express to, to your clients, what those options were and, and how to kind of create your own individual recovery. Yeah. And that, that wasn't something that came naturally. That was a, it, it was a learning experience because when you come in for those of us in recovery and we get into this work, often our, our gut reaction is, okay, I tried 15 different ways to do this and 14 of them didn't work. This is the one that works. So this is the right way. Right. And, and this is, I, I want to, you know, get everyone else to do this because it's what works. But, you know, quickly realizing that, no, every, like seeing so many different people take so many different paths and realizing that, that it may work for me, but that might not work for the guy I'm, I'm trying to help or the girl I'm trying to help. And, and really having to sometimes get creative. And our, 
you know, I, I just knew from my experience there were so many going in with that guilt and shame, so many places that were um, so structured. And, you know, if someone had a relapse or, um, you know, they, they were asked to leave the program or whatever it may be, it was they didn't look at it as um, as, you know, what wasn't working for you. It was you didn't do something properly. You didn't follow the directions properly. You failed. Right. And, and I knew from that time in treatment when I was allowed to come back that how huge that was for me, right? And and for for someone to be able to um, say like, you know, and we do it all the time. It's like, okay, this didn't work for you. This didn't work for you. This didn't work for you. It's not because you're broken. It's not because you're doing something wrong. We just haven't found the right path for you yet. So, and sometimes we have to really get creative and, and try different things or different combinations of things or really... Uh, explore different options to try and find something that might be a fit for that individual. Right. And, you know, me and you, we've both shared a, a similar experience within Umbrella and something that I'm incredibly proud of. And I know you are, it's our, our involvement is, as being the managers of Foundation House, which is our second stage supportive recovery house uh, for men. Um, obviously, we kind of take that individualized approach when we talk about foundation house right and and you kind of mentioned the you know um looking at relapse not as as a you know you're you're out you know you failed kind of uh, of approach and and hey what are we going to do and how how are we going to help support you to you know get back i think you know we've we've had a lot of um a lot of success uh through that house and through that model that we have and i think one of those is our relapse policy right that was a, a pretty new um you know concept at the time right when we yeah, absolutely. It was once we we took over the house. Um, there was when when people would. It was kind of unheard of in the beginning to to take people back after they'd had a relapse or just been using. And um, that was Charlene who pushed a lot of times for that. Against yeah, there was pushback from um, other staff and from other residents and from other community partners too that weren't comfortable with the fact that we would have someone back in the house after they just had a relapse. Um, but, you know, by, by sticking to her guns and, and going forward with that model, we were able to see the progress and see that um, a lot of the, was, there was so much damage control from, from not making people have to start at square one again and repeat the whole process. We were able to, to kind of catch that um, before it got to disaster zone. Sometimes, you know, everybody's different and some people just don't have that ability to um, control their impulses sometimes. And whether it's due to brain injury or whatever the case may be, or it's just someone hasn't quite learned it, or there's just one missing piece. Mm-hmm. And um, we can figure that out and work with them sometimes after a relapse. And we can, you know, it's a great opportunity to examine it and support them and say, let's see what happened. What, what was happening right before this? What led to this? And, that's just an area we can give some extra attention, have some extra counseling around, support you around, um, which is our whole thing is, you know, when someone's had a slip, when they're trying to stay sober, they need more support at that point, not less. Right. Which is, which is something um, we, we have done and continue to do. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's it's such a key piece and it really kind of speaks to that individual process. And like you said, you know, 
you tried 15 different ways or 15 different ways, 14 didn't work, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's always the conversation we have is, okay, what's going to be different? You know, what, what, what do we need to adjust here in, in this program? And like you say, let's, let's, you know, let's look at this, let's take the shame and guilt out of it. Let's, let's look at this objectively and, and try to figure out what we can do to write that course and to kind of change it. You know, I, I think you, you brought, you know, up something before too is, is relapse can be an incredible learning tool, uh, you know, at, at times. And, and it's not like, you know, because you had that relapse that all of a sudden you're starting from scratch again, right? You can still take all of those things that you're building and, and create that, you know, finally get that solidity in your recovery, right? Um, giving people the space to do that obviously is key. Um, you know, our, our model as well, I always look at the length of time that people can stay um, you know, in support. I think that's always something to kind of talk about because there is this thought, right? That 90 days is enough. You know, if we go to 90 day treatment and we get back into community, you know, we have a model here where you can stay as long as you like. Um, so long as you are staying sober and you are, um, following, you know, the, the, the guidelines of the house and, and kind of contributing to the environment. Um, but that length of stay is obviously, you know, really, really important. Um, and being able to get back into life. Can, can you speak a little bit to, you know, uh, under that support, getting back to, to employment and, and school and, and letting people work and, and letting people kind of navigate these things? It's Yeah, I think the classic example that I would use is how many times I've seen people go through they go to detox, they go to stabilization, they go to treatment, they go to second stage housing, they put in all this time, all this work, they're done, they've reached their time limits at these places, they get a place of their own, an apartment, um, they get a job, they get their first paycheck, and they're sitting at home alone with money in their pocket and they relapse because they have zero practice um, of having money in their pocket, of having a job, and it's such a shock to the system being in that bubble for so long and then all of a sudden working with people who are all talking about going out and getting wasted on the weekend and you have money and you're sitting at home alone you know feeling like an outcast not sure what to do and and all of a sudden the bottom falls out and so i think any any way we can kind of safeguard and extend people's experience in order for them to um experience as much as they can while still having that support and accountability which is really what led to our our third stage housing as well, which is like uh, people get to a point in second stage housing where they're ready for more independence. They're ready right. to not necessarily be living with that many other dudes. And they're ready for maybe to not have all these check-ins and curfews and stuff that, that we need in the beginning. And, but at the same time, they still need that, that's little bit of peer support, that some accountability, knowing they're somewhere where they have to be sober. And, and that's a great opportunity for guys to, to get back to pretty much what looks like normal life while still having that bit of support. There's a little, like the longer we can bridge that gap, the more better chance of success people will have. Right. Yeah. That soft landing that grew those graduated steps back mm -hmm. to, yeah, just community living. Right. And yeah. Yeah, and we see it you know, all the time. There was, there was a, I remember a, a fellow in the house who'd always say, stay until you think you're ready and then stay a little bit longer. I like that, right? It just gives right. you that extra bit of time and, and support. Um, you know, and, and, and I wish that, you, you know, this is kind of something that, that you know, and we try our best to impart this to our clients, but we, we wish the, the general public and, and people that are going through and experience this kind of, you know, know, you know, I, 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 this is a good way to kind of change gears, obviously, you know, people that are just getting into recovery 
we don't have a system that sets them up for success, right? We are, the infrastructure of, of recovery does not make it easy. You spoke to it right away. You know, you had this, this idea, Hey, I need help. And the thought is, Hey, as soon as you put your hand up and say, I need help that you actually get it in a, in a reasonably, you know, efficient amount of time. We know this isn't a reality. It may be a reality, you know, in other parts of the world. I think it's definitely not a reality where we come from and, and, and our, our neck of the woods. And I think a, a lot of around, you know, at least in, in Western communities, it's, it's, it's not something that, that we experience, that you get that, that help. And the system navigation surrounding uh, accessing recovery supports is really, really hard. As an outreach worker myself, and, and you experience this, system navigation is probably the biggest challenge that we face. You know, and, and I always think, man, if this is hard for us, Imagine, you know, um, being right in the, in the thick of it and, and battling, you know, a full blown addiction and trying to navigate these waters on your own. It's, it's really, you know, a, a hard go. What's, you know, what's, what's your experience with that? What do you think that we need to do systemically to, to create this change or to make, to make it a, an easier ride for folks? Yeah, I think you nailed it, which is how, how challenging the system navigation is, how many barriers there are, how many hoops there are to jump through, how challenging and confusing these referral processes are in the beginning. And if you look at Umbrella, it's, it's designed to, to fill those gaps, um, to support people while they are on wait lists, to support people and help them literally to do all that stuff that's so challenging while you're battling an addiction. Um, but also if you look at any of our programming and, and our houses and stuff, our referral processes are super simple. Right, um, yeah. and, and that's intentional, right? We don't want people to have to tell their life story the first time they reach out to us for help. It's so, uh, intimidating and scary to do in the beginning that, that we want to make it as easy as possible for you. Um, so yeah, we need, I, I think there needs to be work done around that, um, wait times are yeah there's just not Sorry. enough right there's not enough recovery and um beds out there for detox or treatment or everything in between housing all that kind of good stuff so we need just way 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 more of it yeah you know i i think that's it it really is as capacity is is the issue right um you know obviously if we had more options and um you know uh, more space available uh, for each option, it would make such a difference. You know, a good example, and it's something that I always talk about um, whenever I have the opportunity because it's not common knowledge. You know, right now, and and t typical wait time for a seven-day detox program um, is is you know up to two months, and uh, to tell somebody to hold that thought for that long, and and to tell family members, um, you know, when when they're they're you know, child or loved one is, is in such danger, um, to, to, you know, hold on for two months while, while a bed gets freed up for you for a seven day program. It's, it's absurd. Um, you know, for me, it's like you say, the thought is, and I think the, the, um, you know, idea out there for the general public is that if you want detox, you can access detox. It would make sense, but that's just not the reality. Right. And that's a really, for me, I, it's a scary time as a worker. It's a scary time for clients and especially in this climate, it's potentially fatal. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, actually getting those supports quickly is, is, you know, so, so vital. Um, 
what do you think is going to change? What do you think that, you know, what, what do we need to do as far as, you know, more space is available? What's, you know, what else needs to happen? Do you think, you know? Yeah, there needs to be way, way more beds. It's kind of, it's, it's mind blowing to me that, you know, we're like, when you touched, touched on the danger of things, that's that, that is, there's never been enough beds to begin with. Um, and there's, there's always been way too long wait times, but the fact that we're in the middle of this overdose crisis and we're losing this many people, wouldn't you think we would bend over backwards when someone says they want to make changes and stop using substances? Like, right. I, I don't get it right. that, you know, we're this many people are dying every day and people, there are people out there that want to stop using and they can't because they're not given the opportunity um, or they're told to wait for months on end and, and they die on wait lists. The reality is there's people dying that are on wait lists for detox, that are on wait lists for treatment. Right. Um, so how, you know, it, it just, I don't get it. When people are wanting to make changes and and all these people are dying, wouldn't we do everything possible to fund and to create as many beds uh, as we can and have as much support as we can for people that want to stop using substances? Right. Yeah, it's just, it's it's absolutely bizarre, you know. Um, and and the, the wait times, that's only, you know, that's only the you know, one aspect of it. Funding's yeah. another aspect. The fact that every single time someone actually says, I want to, you know, apart from the seven day detox, we're talking about, you know, substantial amount of money um, to fund uh, your your treatment. And, you know, if, for, for individuals who are on PWD or income assistance, you might get that ride. But it doesn't leave you anything. So if you have a, if you have a, uh, a place to rent, you're going to have to give that up to access treatment, um, you know, and, and if you're an individual who's hanging on for dear life and, and trying to work, you, you know, you, you don't even have that option. You're talking about $40,000, 20 to $40,000 to access, you know, something that, that may or may not work the first time. So the funding piece is, is incredibly challenging too, right? Yeah. If you, if the definition of addiction, and if we're viewing it as a medical issue, it should be covered by medical. I, I, that's something that I've never understood is, you know, you have, you have to pay to get the help or you have to be, um, burn everything to the ground to the point where you're eligible for income assistance or be on disability. The fact that it's not covered as a medical issue, I, I don't get. Right. And that's something that I think needs to change because again, it's just a one more, and it's not small, it's a massive barrier. It's one more massive barrier that keeps a whole lot of people from making changes around their substance use. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that's, that really is the role that, that, that we provide here as, as outreach workers at Umbrella is trying to knock down some of these barriers. There are so many, you know, I, we just touched upon a couple, you know, um, you know, but, but access to treatment, a lot of the times we were having to send people to their own community, you know, in our community, we don't have, um, you know, treatment facilities. We, uh, you know, uh, or definitely few and far between. So most times we're having to take people to other communities, bring them to the mainland to, to access those supports. How are we going to get somebody there? Um, you know, what if they've got a, a pet? What are we going to do with that? You know, there's so many uh, barriers that, that people don't think of. So, I mean, that is our role. And our role too is 
there are these dangerous gaps. So, you know, trying to make a seamless transition from detox to stabilization to treatment, man, that's the dream, you know, um, it, really hard to achieve, uh, both logistically and, and, you know, keeping both the client, uh, you know, motivated and going that direction without any bumps, but also making sure that the system isn't, you know, getting the way those gaps can be killers. Right. You know, and, and I guess that's our, our role is to, is to provide hope and, and some form of, of support during those times. Yeah. And I think it's challenge. Those gaps are huge. Um, and, and we lose people in those gaps all the time. And it's challenging because people out there that are using drugs and out, and out have alcohol issues out there right now know about this. They know how the system works because they've been through it a couple of times. Um, and they know about these gaps and they know how challenging it is to get on these wait lists and, and get the help. So a lot of the times they don't bother, right? Because it's, it is so tough for them to do. And I think that's again, where you, you mentioned it before, there's this kind of myth that all these people in the hotels, all these people out on the street, they're all happy with just to right. do drugs all day and, and stay addicted, which is not the case. I guarantee yeah. none of these people are happy in their addiction. Um, but they're, they're smart people and they understand that it's a broken system and they know that the help's often not there for them. Or if it is, it's so far in the future that why bother kind of thing, right? So it's not that people are happy to keep going like they are. It's, it's that we haven't provided enough support for them. If, if you had, if you were had a detox that people could go to the day of tomorrow and we could get you straight from there to treatment and then give you sober housing, I think a lot yeah. of these people would jump at that and, and go for it, right? The reality is that's not an option for them. There is options for them to keep using. There's options for them to stay addicted and, and you know, try and, try and help them that way. But we don't have those same options as far as um, people that, that actually want to stop. So they're just not there right now. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's that other myth that, that we do need to break down, you know, is, yeah, that people are, are happy where they're at. And I, yeah, I think you're 100% right. I think that... that these are smart individuals that, that know their options. And, and when, when there's not that, um, when they know that, that the path ahead is so hard and has so many barriers, a lot of times it's just too insurmountable. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, so obviously, you know, we bring up some real frustrations and some, and some, you know, kind of, you know, not, it feels a little doom and gloom, but there is, there is hope out there. And I think that's, you know, to kind of close out this, this first cast, I'd love to, you know, impart some hope. Obviously, that's what this this podcast is about. Is we're going to be talking to a whole bunch of individuals that have found success, and they found their success in, through so many different um, you know steps, and and their stories are so unique and, and individual to them. Um, but you know, the the underlying theme is is they have have found a road out of their addiction, um, and kind of the the light on on the other the side. We've seen that through all your clients that, that you've worked with, through all the, the people that have come through the house. You know, what's what can we what can we say to, to people that that may be discouraged at this point that that, you know, what what would you say to them? You know, yeah, there's I think we did. It is a lot of doom and gloom and we voiced a lot of frustrations um, with the reality of the situation. But of course, there's so many miracles and successes we wouldn't do this work if there wasn't Absolutely. right um that that's what keeps all of us in this field going is seeing these 
people make miraculous changes and, and start new lives and regain old lives. And um, I, I think, and that's some of the work we need to do too, I think is, is sharing those stories and, and letting people know that, that there, there are successful people out there because that's going to want to people to put more resources into helping people get sober as well. But also I think it really provides hope for people um, like, like myself who didn't know anyone in recovery and hadn't heard anyone's real stories of, of recovery. So I think it's really important that we share a lot of these successes. And, and there are a lot, like all the guys, we have so many guys that have come through our house, so many who work for us now. Um, there's just so many, so many miracles out there, but, but often what happens I think is, yeah, they, they get kind of, um, back into the fold of society, whether it's through a job or a career and, and we don't hear how they're doing or, or that that story's out there. Um, so it's, it's important that we share all the successes, I think. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I, I think that I, I don't know how this happened, but it does seem to be, there seem to have in the last, you know, at least since I've been this, there's, there's almost a taboo around talking about recovery and kind of making recovery vocal. And, and I think that is one of the big intentions to this cast is to like, this is something that we need to celebrate and we need to show that there are so many different ways out there and, and that there are, um, you know, so many members of our community that have, have figured this out and, have gotten on the other side of it. So, you know, and I appreciate, you know, obviously, um, you know, I've, I've known you for, for many, many years and, and, you know, it's a joy to see, um, the success you, you know, you've had and the turnaround that, that you made in, in your life and, um, how courageous that is and how, how, how much work you have put into this. Um, so, you know, for me, I, I'm, I'm really, proud of you and I'm proud to, um, have you as the first, uh, you know, guest on this, on this podcast. Um, yeah. And hopefully, you know, you might, you might come back for a, for a repeat, uh, you know, maybe, a, a some somewhere down the road, we, you know, get, get you back in here for, for more conversation about this. Cause obviously we're just scratching the surface. This is something that really this, this conversation could, could go on and on. Right. And this is something that, that, you know, we both feel so passionately about, but really appreciate you being here and, uh, and sharing, you know, your experience and, and your, your viewpoint on this. So, um, yeah, thanks so much, man. Awesome. Uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, lots, lots and lots to talk about. We just touched on some of it, but I really look forward to hearing more people's input and more success stories moving forward. Yeah, me too, brother. So with that, we wrap up the first podcast of Comfortably Numb, the official podcast of the Umbrella Society of Victoria. My name, once again, is Blake Anderson. I will be the host of this program, and you can expect to see this uh, every couple of weeks. Come on, this is going to be a bi-weekly event uh, for the unforeseeable future. We're going to have some great conversations surrounding recovery, and we're going to meet some unbelievable people with some uh, really amazing stories. So I love to hear um, recovery told through the lens of, of you know, so many great and dynamic individuals. So we will be bringing that to you. Um, I really hope that this resonated with you and I hope that this uh, can get the conversation started. So that's really the big focus on this. Um, I think this is an important topic to be talking about and uh, we want to do our part to get the word out there. All right, until next time.